Hello, I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. Hey, and I'm David Ball. Welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. So this is a podcast of the BC Echo and Substance Use from the BCCSU. We are recording on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist. I'm also the physician education lead here at the BCCSU and the medical director at the Portland Hotel Society in Vancouver's downtown east side. It's great to be with you, Christy. I'm a journalist. I've spent more than a decade reporting on substance use, opioids, mental health, and the current overdose crisis. This is a podcast for healthcare providers. Dr. Sutherland and I will be focusing on issues in British Columbia on opioid use disorder. David, I am so excited to do this with you and have these interesting conversations. We're going to hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experiences on approaches to substance use. Today, we want to talk about recovery and what that means for people who use drugs as well as our approach as the clinicians who are working with them. Recovery can take many forms. Historically, it's been defined as abstinence from all substances. And for some people, that's still their case. But there can be a spectrum. People with lived experience of substance use disorder can have a variety of ways that they define recovery for themselves. And there are lots of ways that primary care providers can support them in that. Yeah, I think that's so important to have support from your primary care provider as people are working on recovery. And how we speak about recovery with our patients is a very important part of our job. The medications we use for opiate use disorder and our goals for the patients as clinicians are sometimes not in alignment with the patient's goals. Often people have a goal of not being on any medications at all, whereas I'm worried about their overdose risk and would like them to continue on OAT. That's opioid agonist therapy. Absolutely. Good one, David. Thank you. We have to be so respectful of people's autonomy and what they set out for themselves as their goals for their own well-being. I always tell my patients, I can't plug your nose and make you take the methadone dose I think you should take, but can we talk about my worries for your health? Best not to plug people's noses if they don't want it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's not a good technique. (laughs) So today I'm really excited for some of our guests to help break these issues down for us. We're going to be talking to Keir McDonald of Phoenix Society in Surrey and also Dr. Karen Urbanowski, the Canada Research Chair in Substance Use, Addictions and Health Services Research. She's at the University of Victoria. But first, we are going to hear from Al Fowler, who has found recovery on his own terms. So me, I'm involved in with the BC Association of People on Opiate Maintenance, and we fight for for the rights that are on, for, for people that are on the methadone program, whether it be Suboxone, Cadian, Injectable, OAT, and things like that. We fight for our rights to be treated as people. We've uh, won a couple court cases. We've had, you know, some successes in the past, and uh, I think we're going to have even more successes this year because we're all fighting for it. Because there's got to be something done with with the recovery situation because it's all based on, you know, abstinence and, and, and 12 steps. And for a lot of people, recovery isn't abstinence. You know, just because you have to stay abstinent from one substance doesn't mean you have to stay abstinent from every substance. Some places you go into recovery, you pay your fees to live there, your rent or whatever you want to call it, and you're there for 30 days and let's say you go out on a weekend pass or something and and you use a little bit, you have a drink or you smoke a joint or you do a whack or whatever. When you come back, if they do a urinalysis test, they usually just tell you to pack your gear and go. Well, I feel if somebody's in, in a program and they have a slip like that, they need to be worked with, not cast out again, because that just further 
further builds that wall of stigma and builds, you know, in a person's mind, oh, I'm no good, I'll never be able, you know, so that's, so that's something we have to work with. Could you tell me a bit about what recovery means to you then in your life? Well, recovery to me means being able to, uh, to function, you know, like to have the rent paid and to have groceries and, 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 and stuff like that. Like I, I, my, me, myself, I, I do quite well for a while. Then I start to slip and I'd start doing stupid things and I start running myself down and then there's self-sabotage. So I have those slips and I'm still, I'm still doing what I, what needs to be done you know, still using substances and stuff like that. I, I know a few people and other, you know, like they'll use, uh, they'll use substances like medically, you know, like, like one guy, he'll use cocaine and he'll use it like two, maybe three times a day. And, and he's said that, you know, it burns out his anxieties and it's, you know, he's tried antidepressants and they've never worked. And he says when he stops using, he gets all angry again. He's recovering from a lifestyle and recovering from a lifestyle doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, do substances like me I know I can't drink and in and, and lifestyle is you know where you live how you live if you're paying your rent and everything's being looked after you know the thing is if you're going to use a substance let's have them decriminalized or legalized or safe because alcohol during prohibition everybody knows about the gangs and the bad the bad booze and everything else and that's what's happening now with the toxic supply if you go into a liquor store you know how much alcohol is in it how much it, it you know percentages and wise and the same should be done for other substances you know you should be able to go into like a chemist and get you know your 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 half gram of you know 70 percent heroin or, or or your you know half gram of 60 percent cocaine or whatever you choose to use and how you choose to use it is there anything you'd recommend for doctors and nurses uh, dealing with substance users who want to access some kind of recovery or detox program, but may traditionally have just thought of abstinence only? Is there any way that they can kind of figure out which thing to recommend someone? It's, it's, it's really hard because like I'm on the methadone program, but a lot of people, they have their methadone doctor and then they have their regular GP. But the thing is, is like most people don't have a regular GP. So they're going into these clinics when something's wrong with them. So they're, they're seen by multiple doctors to have different ideas of what stigma is and how to treat somebody. So, so you might go to the clinic and, you know, everything's going good. You're seeing a doctor and they're treating you decent. Then you go in another time and you get some, some other doctor who's got certain views and, and ideas on stuff. And then he, he interferes with your recovery by either cutting your meds down or cutting you off or even just, just using negatory terms when he's speaking to you or she's speaking to you, right? It's, it's, it's recovery is, it's, it's not from, the usage is from what we suffered before to, or what we're suffering now that causes the usage of the pain, the trauma. You know, a lot of people self-medicate for pain because you can't get anything anymore. And it's, and it's a lifestyle choice of what you want to do. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. That was Al Fowler. He's a member of the board of the BC Association of People in Opioid Maintenance and a member of our editorial board. And I got to sit down with him in the offices of Vandu and BCA Palm down at the downtown east side. People with substance use disorders can define what recovery looks like for themselves. And as primary care providers, our role is to help them reach those goals and to stay as safe as possible along the way. Now, I can say this as a member of the media and a journalist. Sometimes harm reduction and recovery homes are shown I guess kind of being at odds with each other. Things, however, are never quite that black and white, as you're gonna hear from our next guest. 
Kier McDonald is the CEO of Phoenix Society in Surrey, BC, and they offer a number of services, including early recovery, residential addiction treatment, post-treatment transitional housing, and they help people out with employment and educational opportunities. Welcome, Kier. We're so glad to have you. Good morning. How do you define recovery? Wow, start with a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the term is, is really, um, there's really something in that term for everyone. I mean, recovery and so often as people come through our programs, I think everyone comes into recovery with a different mindset. And um, for me personally, and I think for Phoenix, recovery really is a journey. And it's really a journey to finding um, really wellness and a better life, um, ultimately. And um, for some people, that's obviously an, an abstinence-based journey. Um, they're looking to, you know, totally eliminate substance use from their life. And for others, it's trying to lessen the harms. And, uh, you know, recovery for us starts with coming into one of one of our residential substance use programs. But um, the journey of recovery really is lifelong. And uh, 90 days is just the starting point as far as a treatment program goes. Tell us a bit more about that relationship between harm reduction and recovery. Yeah, I mean, it's been so pronounced over the last few years. Um, I mean, ultimately, people need to be alive to find recovery, and um, and harm reduction is such a vital, vital part of the continuum to to help people to stay safer, um, to stay alive, uh, to lessen the harms of, of of the risks that they may have, whether that's through their substance use, through the environment. You know, harm reduction again is is a very broad term, but you know, it can be as simple as you know, condoms and warm clothing and shelter and these kind of pieces as well. But I, I just think they are so intrinsically linked and so important along that continuum of care that we don't often discuss or the importance and the relationship, We, you know, ultimately that we need both. I love that. Yeah, I totally agree. I know one of the challenges in residential recovery centers can be relapse, both from like a safety perspective, if someone has a seizure history or if they're quite uncomfortable with their relapse and for the program. What is your approach to relapse when people are at their residential recovery centers? Yeah, you're right. It's probably the single biggest risk for any uh, recovery program. And, and it's quite often part of recovery. I mean, for a center like ours that has a bit over 60 beds on site, someone will at some point you know, over, over the course of any few weeks um, lapse. Really, it's been a journey. I think there's been a lot of learning over the last few years about how to, how to handle those cases. So I can speak from the Phoenix perspective and I guess my own little philosophical piece that lapse doesn't happen for everyone but it definitely is part of the recovery journey for, for, for some and so often um, when people do lapse you know they're already so vulnerable the stigma they put on themselves when when that occurs so we try to work with people we recognize that it, it does happen and people will lapse at different stages of their recovery and our experience has been it's, it's very often at those transition points so people coming in the first two or three weeks that this, you know, as they're adapting to the program, that's a challenging period. Um, another challenging period we find is for people that may be transitioning from maybe a completion of a program into housing. Our aim is to work with people, um, really to understand their needs, you know, so if, if a lapse occurs, is that part of, you know, a desire to resume substance use or is that just part of their recovery journey that no, they, they really want to, to, to stay the course with the treatment program and, as an agency, we've really tried to take more of a harm reduction philosophy to working with flaps and uh, recognizing that, that it occurs and that people are more vulnerable at that time than any. Yeah, it's a kind of thing where people need so much support in that moment, especially in this context right now in BC with the deaths that we're seeing. Completely. What so often happened in so many centers is 
people lapse their substance use and they're out the door, you know, and, um, and it's such a risk right now because very few people coming into our programs have, have, a, have an early exit plan, have somewhere safe to land if they leave a program like ours. So I think the onus, you know, it's um, any agency taking on a referral and taking someone into their programs. I mean, it, I think they know they have responsibility, but I think it's just as a system trying to make sure that people coming in that we've, that there's been some thought to what happens if it doesn't work out because the elevated risk that people have if they leave a program and, and people voluntarily leave as well. So how do we keep people safe if they decide that maybe treatment isn't for them right now? So this podcast is for community physicians and healthcare providers in BC. And for that group listening right now, what would you like to tell them about the work you do and the research you're involved in that could benefit healthcare practitioners day to day? I think the big thing is just there are so many different, you know, you started with a big topic like what does recovery mean to you? There's all also so many different forms of treatment and recovery programs. And I think that complexity, we've heard the stories that it's so, it's so challenging for, for families to navigate. I think it, quite frankly, is extremely difficult for physicians and healthcare professionals to navigate. And so I guess the, the big thing for me is just, as we've talked about, I mean, not, not sure how many people know about the Phoenix Society, but the fact that we actually have three distinct programs. So what stream is actually appropriate for your patients? Um, you know, how do you know which one differs from the other? Um, you know, that's, that's a big piece in just, just the education and trying to find the right match and the right fit for, for people's needs. Um, I think every every agency continues to look at their practice, continues to look at adjusting um, their programs to meet the needs. I think the biggest part of that has really been the evolution of maybe even the model of recovery. You know, we've heard for so long um, the 12-step model or the Minnesota model. You know, I think it's really important to recognize there is a diversity of programs and modalities that are being um, practiced out there now. I think that's so interesting to think about um, the unique interventions that each person may need and the one that they start out with might not be the one that is for them. And so I could think for family doctors, it's important to say, well, do you know that there's different types of programs or different types of places that you can go? Exactly. And um, nothing's necessarily you know, better or worse. It's just some people find that fit. And it's not a one size fits all. I mean, even people use different substances. Um, and so you can't have just that, that one approach um, because quite frankly, someone may be going through withdrawal or looking to come off substances that may be an opioid user um, versus someone that may, you know, consume alcohol. Sometimes they're different journeys and, and there's even different support structures from a, from a continuum perspective. I think it's important to say, have that menu of services that we can sort of tailor and adjust to meet people's needs. Otherwise, what happens is, People will try, will, will change through different centers to try and find that fit. And so, you know, you often hear the reports about it takes people five or six times to find recovery and to find lasting recovery. Um, I think part of that may be because mm -hmm. they're trying to shop for that solution. They're trying to find that right fit for that center or that point in time that, that made it work for them. Kira, thank you so much for your incredible work and for your time today. We appreciate it so much. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on. Kier McDonald is the CEO of Phoenix Society in Surrey, BC. He's doing such incredible work. And as he mentioned, if your patient is looking for help to enter a recovery program, it is so important to think about all the options out there and which ones might give your patient the best chance for success. This is a challenging time for a person. Transitions like this are a huge impact in someone's life and in their risk for overdose. So we as primary care clinicians want to be really supportive of them and put safety first. Transition is also a really stressful time, especially if you don't have housing or a social network to return to, so it's important to help patients as best we can. 
from the folks we've talked to, I think it's clear and from care that you need to meet the patient where they're at. And that seems like one of the big takeaways. Our next guest has studied a lot of these issues in recovery and addictions. Dr. Karen Urbanowski has researched health equity oriented approaches in responding to the overdose crisis and how patients interact with current practices. She's a researcher, scientist, and professor, and holds the Canada Research Chair in Substance Use Addictions and Health Services Research. She's a professor at the University of Victoria. Hello, thank you. Karen, we're so delighted to chat with you today about recovery, um, and I'm interested in hearing how you define the word recovery. That's a good one, and it's not one that is uncontroversial. I think of recovery as being a process of resolving substance-related problems. And that may or may not involve abstinence from substances, either in the short term or the long term. Many researchers have explored different ways of defining recovery from the perspective of folks who use drugs and um, consider themselves um, as being in recovery. It often involves a process of regaining aspects of your life that you had previously uh, had problems in or had left by the wayside as your involvement with substances um, increased. And so people who are in recovery report aspects such as increased quality of life, re-engagement with family and social relationships um, in employment as being really key aspects. And has your understanding of the concept of recovery changed over time? Like, do you think there's been shifts in how we talk about recovery? Absolutely, uh, there has been. For me, um, I've been really interested in some of the the readings and the literature that comes out that talks about all the different ways that people see as being key to their own recovery processes. Some of the research that um, has been coming out um, more recently around not just the use of uh, opioid agonists in, in treatment, but um, other adjunct substances, so whether it's cannabis to help folks with withdrawal symptoms and other forms of pain, to the extent that some folks find that to be helpful in uh, their recovery pathways is a really interesting and active area of exploration right now. Groups such as Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, Smart Recovery, Life Ring, all these peer-based groups can really be helpful for, for some people. They're often an accessible resource in the sense that they're available outside of the major city centers, which can be a problem problem when it comes to accessing treatment. I think one thing that's really interesting about the treatment system and the role that treatment plays in, in recovery is that many people don't realize a stint in treatment is not a necessary prerequisite for recovery. And that's true of opioids, it's true of other substances as well. So it certainly is helpful for some folks. And it absolutely is necessary for some people, but not for everybody. Actually, the majority of people, if we look at, at population-based studies, the majority of people who experience a problem related to their substance use do actually recover without professional treatment. From your research, what are the kind of approaches or models that work the best in terms of efficacy? In a clinical sense, for 
opioids specifically, that would be opioid agonist treatments are the first line of treatment and are the most evidence-based in the sense that we know that they help people on a process of um, recovery as well as reducing not just substance use, but also engagement in criminal activity, acquisition crimes related to to substance use, and help people along that path of regaining their, their relationships with families, with employers, and so on. Yeah, I definitely noticed that clinically, and especially what you said about um, sort of people picking their journey to recovery, that sometimes if you start someone on OAT, they just get better so quickly. And then, um, you know, they don't need to take time off school or time away from their kids to go to inpatient recovery. That's a great point. And there's been this growing sense, which I can I can see happening in society as well as in the scientific literature, which is very interesting. And that's the division between what we see as being harm reduction services and what we call treatment. I really reject that idea of there being a dichotomy between what we might think of as abstinence-based treatment, whether or not you include OAT in that definition, and some of the services that we think of as being more harm reduction-focused. Part of what my research looks at is secondary to the idea of clinical effectiveness. How do we organize services and supports into a comprehensive system that folks can access in order to be able to uh, help themselves get the resources that they need in order to engage in recovery? And for some folks, that absolutely is services like needle exchanges, maybe a supervised consumption site or an overdose prevention site. And if that becomes the pathway by which they engage with the system and it becomes the pathway by which they enter into that process of recovery, however they define it, then that's certainly something to be celebrated and not something that is seen as sort of a zero-sum game with respect to funding and organization of services with other more traditional abstinence-based treatments. Yeah, I definitely see that uh, because I think about my injectable opiate agonist treatment program where, you know, some people have different opinions about whether or not that's treatment, Um, but people reconnect with their families, they reconnect with their hobbies, they maintain housing, they decrease criminal behavior, suddenly they start engaging in primary care, they're gaining weight because they have money to buy groceries. So it's all those things that you listed of people's goals for recovery. Absolutely. And that's a very important point. I think when we think about services at a systems level, what's really interesting is to kind of think through what are the options available to anyone on a given day, if they decide that they would like some supports, what are their options for actually accessing the service system? And are those options appropriate for them? Are they acceptable? Are they accessible? And those types of factors right now are really quite uneven depending on where you live. Oh, the rural context is is challenging for provision of Absolutely. services. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Therapeutic Alliance. For a frontline health provider, what does that mean when, when you're talking about uh, what is the Therapeutic Alliance when it comes to drug treatment? The one consistent predictor of how folks do in a therapeutic regimen that fit with your healthcare professional is really, really key. Unfortunately, when people access the healthcare system with substance use problems, they often encounter a fair amount of stigma. Unfortunately, that therapeutic alliance is not always there. Yet, 
that is possibly the most important factor in terms of whether a given encounter with the healthcare system is going to be used as an opportunity to engage with that person or not. We know um, from the evidence that those encounters with the healthcare system can be negative to the point of even being traumatic. Dr. Urbanowski, you've also researched health equity-oriented approaches to inform responses to opiate overdoses. How might that approach come into play in the area of recovery? Equity-oriented approaches, that has to do with both the content and the overarching service that's being delivered, as well as the process by which that service is being built and implemented. So in the first instance, an equity-oriented intervention would be one that attends to diversity and um, cultural appropriateness, cultural safety as being a a really key part of trying to make that help-seeking process safe and appropriate for the individual. So factors like individualized treatment programming, um, maybe aspects of allowing for childcare within the therapeutic context, cultural safety, whether it's Indigenous cultural programming, um, traditional healing practices as an adjunct to to care um, really come into play. With respect to the process aspect, that would be that folks who have lived and living experience are being involved in the development, the evaluation, and the guidance of the programs and the policies that are affecting them. So if a patient is comes and talks to a clinician or frontline provider about having a desire to enter some type of recovery or rehab program, what is the most important thing for that clinician to consider in terms of what they're recommending, what they're referring people to? I would say not to lose the opportunity to engage with the person and uh, to just have a conversation. Too many times people in the healthcare professions are too focused on um, what the ideal scenario would be. And I think I, I would like to see more flexibility and exchange of dialogue around what might be ideal for a person in a given circumstance, which may not be exactly what uh, what the clinician would like. What health services are there to do is to provide people with the resources that they need to be able to achieve their own health goals. And I think if we thought about treatment and therapy, um, medication-assisted or not, more along those terms, rather than as something that we're doing to people, that it's more about giving people the resources that they need to be able to make those decisions around their health, it may lead to more um, successes in the longer term. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think that's challenging as a clinician when the person, the patient sets the pace and the goals and they can be very incremental. So I can imagine myself with a patient with liver failure and I want them to stop drinking, but maybe they say, I think I'll cut my drinking in half. So, it, you know, going along with the, that patient-centered goal, even when the goal is not my goal for their health, it can be challenging. But, but as long as the person has all of the information and they're making those choices, um, as a clinician, I guess we'd have to go along with, with them rather than <laughs> telling them what we think they should do. It's probably a bit of a balance in pushing that 
using your expertise and allowing the the patient to be making enough decisions so that they're not just going to walk away. Yeah. And then I can think about as well, like regular primary care uh, issues like colon cancer screening or pap tests. Sometimes it's nice for patients to say, I just want you to know that you're due for this. I mean, it's on your to-do list and you, you let me know when you're ready to do this. And I find more success that way um, when the patient feels it's in their hands. That's right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invite. It was a pleasure. Dr. Karen Urbanowski is the Canadian Research Chair in Substance Use, Addictions and Health Service Research. She's a researcher with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. And we reached her in Victoria, where she is Assistant Professor of Public Health and Social Policy at the University of Victoria. I want clinicians to develop the tools and skills to deliver really good primary care to people who use drugs. Providing care for this population can be challenging and rewarding, and if you're just starting to expand your practice, it can feel like a big area to tackle. Let's sum up what we've heard from our guests from this episode. I was mulling this over and thought that these are the clinical pearls that I wanted to leave you with. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. There are a range of definitions of what recovery means, but what they all have in common is well-being, connection with community, and meeting a person's goals. Recovery is an ongoing process and requires ongoing support. It's great to check in with your patients about their recovery, especially during stressful times. During COVID and isolation over these past few months, I've been talking with my patients who are in recovery about stress and cravings and how those are so interrelated. Acute withdrawal management is just one step in recovery. It's not addiction treatment alone. It makes sure that people are medically safe and establishes a connection to care. If someone wants to go to an inpatient treatment program, that's another step. But when they leave, they're continuing an ongoing process that hopefully involves OAT. We want to be cautious in this time period after abstinence is high risk for overdose death. It's ideal for people to be on a therapeutic dose of OAT and have access to naloxone and safe consumption sites. For myself, as a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist, I see all kinds of patients. Some are seeking recovery and some are not. There are many paths to recovery and many unique patient needs to be supported, including catching up on any primary care issues that have not been addressed. I found so much that for people, when they stop using drugs, they'll come in with something like knee pain that they've actually had for probably 20 years and they never knew was there before because of their drug use. You order an x-ray, start to do a few investigations, and you find some really worrisome things that have been missed about their health this whole time. Make sure that people in your care know your concerns and have all of the information about their health and then support them along their journey. And remember, recovery can be incremental. There are many small steps. It's important as a clinician to support patient-centered goals and not pressure people to do more, as tempting as it can be. We can celebrate all of the small victories along the way, and this makes your clinical day so incredibly enjoyable. We can talk with patients about their improved relationships, improved housing, health, and what brings joy to a person's life. Wasn't that all really interesting, Christy? Oh my gosh, I love, it's so much rich learning. Thanks so much to all of our guests today. I think we have a lot to reflect on from what they said. Al Fowler, Keir McDonald, and Dr. Karen Urbanowski. This has been Addiction Practice Pod, the podcast of the BC Echo on substance use. So if you want to learn more about the studies we've been citing today or find more resources about recovery, including some of the studies by Dr. Urbanowski, look in our show notes where you'll find a short survey as well. And we'd really love to hear from you so we can create the best possible podcast for primary care providers. If you want to learn more about the BC Echo on substance use, you can visit 
BC Echo on substanceuse.ca. The Echo Sessions are a great resource and you can take them for free. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use and it was made possible through the financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. This was great, David. Thank you. It was wonderful to chat today. I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. And I'm David Ball. Thank you all so much for listening.